Heavenly Father, we pray, um, giving you thanks for this class that we can look at your word and think about it and, and hear your voice. We pray that you would be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So, um, so far uh, in this series, we've looked only at historical, the historical books. And then today we're going to look at a completely different genre. We're going to look at the five books of Psalms and Wisdom. Psalms and Wisdom are largely um, ahistorical. There's a few um, historical references in the Psalms, um, but they're very general. And um, in, uh, for the most part, there's a kind of timelessness feel that you have when you read particularly the Wisdom books. And the reason for that is that it allows it to be applicable at all times, right? Um, so let me just start with the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, the word Psalm comes from uh, the Greek word for a song. Um, it, the Psalms are the most quoted, is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. The second most quoted is Isaiah. Uh, Psalms is basically an anthology, right? It's a collection of 150 songs. Um, worship songs of Israel. About half of them are written by David. Um, and it stretches about a thousand years. Um, some of the songs are attributed to Moses, and then some of the songs are attributed to the exile period, so that's a thousand year period. So all along through Israel's history, they were collecting these songs, they were adding to this collection. And I think it's very uh, significant that this worship songbook, basically, you have right in the middle of the Bible, uh, in the middle of history and laws and uh, prophetic texts. And so what does that mean? And so that's, I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about that. What does it mean that God gives us a worship songbook? And it shows us the importance of singing in the Christian faith. Um, why do we sing as believers? We don't just sing because some of us enjoy singing. <laughs> we don't just sing because, oh, wouldn't it be nice to decorate um, doctrine truths with, um, by putting it to tune and, and lyrics. It's not decorative, it's not ornamental, it is central. And the reason is because singing engages the whole body. Uh, if you think about the mechanics of singing, um, you can't just sing with your throat. If you're just singing with your throat, you're actually doing it badly. You have to sing with your whole body. Um, you have to sing from your, your chest, right? You have to sing engaging all of your mind and your emotions. And I think, I love this quote, and, and, and this reflects, it's reflected in this quote. Augustine said, to sing is to pay, pray twice. Um, the Psalms are a book of prayers, right? Psalms, uh, the, the other thing you should know about the Psalms is that um, they're, they're God's people's response to God, right? So we're, we're reading these prayers of God's people, we're not just reading them, which would be edifying in itself, but we're singing them. So we're praying them twice. We're, going, we're doing them at another level. And I think there's something very powerful and profound about songs and music that touches us in a way that nothing else can. If I could just share one quick story. Um, the first time I heard O Shenandoah, I don't know if you know that song, by a boys choir, I was, I, I, it's like almost indescribable the experience. I just started bawling. I just started crying because it was so beautiful, right? And um, 
and I think that's the power of music, right? It, it, it moves us, it, it engages us in a way that nothing else can. So let's look at Colossians 3.16, for example. Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think all of us want that, right? We want Christ's words, we want um, scripture to be in us, in our hearts, guiding us, directing us. So how does that happen? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So some of that comes from teaching, that's what I'm doing. Some of that comes from admonishing one another, right? We need fellow believers to encourage you, to speak truth and love to you, to gently rebuke you when you need it. But then listen to what Paul says. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so a big way to implant the Word is by singing them. Um, this is why in the worship service we sing. Um, and let me here add a, a little bit of commentary. Um, I think a lot of people think of the singing portion of worship as sort of the, the what you see like the, the previews in movies, right? And they're sort of like the, they, they fill up the beginning part, but then the main feature is the real thing. And a lot of people think of the main feature as the sermon. And so the singing time is sort of like the allowance of being late. <laughs> um, and I think that's a very uh, impoverished, very uh, poor understanding of worship service. The singing is just as essential. And in many ways, the singing uh, implants the word more deeply than even the sermon can. Um, the other point I would like to make is that the Psalms teach us the full range of, go of godly emotions. Um, I, I think so many of us were tempted to think of emotions as um, positive emotions and negative emotions, right? Good emotions and then dark emotions. And you should, you should only have the good emotions, right? You should um, have thankfulness, uh, praise for God, joy. And you shouldn't have any of the negative emotions, fear, anger, doubt, depression, anxiety. Um, but what do we see in the Psalms? We see all of these emotions displayed. And um, it's showing us what it means to be a godly person um, living before God. It's showing us that it's normal and good to feel these emotions as part of the human experience. And therefore, there, are no, there, are, there is not good emotions and bad emotions. There's only what you do with the emotions, right? Do we bring them before God? Do we process them before God? Or do we um, act out in a destructive way? And so I think the Psalms teach us emotional health. Uh, we're often scared of strong emotions. We don't want to feel strong emotions because we feel maybe out of control. Um, but the Psalms show us that a godly person is not stoic, but feels deeply, right? If, you're, if you don't feel deeply, then to some degree, you're, you're not being fully human. Um, and so the Psalms, I think, as we study them and read them, it expands our emotional range. You see really intense emotions in the Psalms. You see extremely strong, deep anger, right? Like murderous anger. You see the depths of depression, right? What's the point of living anymore? You know, kill me now. Um, you see ecstatic praise. And what the psalmist does is he invites us to sit with him, to sympathize, to listen to his emotions. And in that way, it's teaching us, it's preparing us how to deal with these emotions when they happen to us. Because I think for a lot of us, 
we normally live our lives with a limited emotional range, or maybe we don't even allow ourselves to feel deep anger or deep depression, or maybe you're just temperamentally not a depressed person. You're always just relatively cheerful and chipper. Well, read the Psalms and go down into the depths with the psalmist, and it provides you a script on how to deal with your emotions. Um, let me go into how to read the Psalms in terms of the mechanics. So here I want to talk about the features of Hebrew poetry. Um, very quick lesson. This applies uh, not only to the Psalms, but it applies to uh, the wisdom books um, and the uh, uh, prophetic books. Um, and first, uh, to help us understand poetry, let's talk about poetry in the English language. So, what are the features of English poetry? Uh, I feel a little bit like uh, Robin Williams in that movie, right? <laughs> um, Dead Poet Society. Um, I want everyone to stand on their desks, right? <laughs> um, all right, so English poetry, uh, poetry in the English language, I don't, uh, poetry is not my particular passion or, or specialty, so please don't feel intimidated as if, Anna, yes, what are the features of, were you raising your hand? No, I wasn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> when you do this, <laughs> um, there's actually only one main feature of English poetry, as I understand it, if someone here is an English major, you can correct me, but what is that main, main feature? How do you know you're reading English poetry? How do you know? How do you know poetry versus prose? Like, how do you know you're not reading an article in the New York Times? Okay, but what does the line breaks? Who said that? Jesslyn? Oh, hello. Uh, what does the line breaks, what does that indicate? Uh, so that's a visual cue. Yeah. But how do you know when you're hearing poetry? Rhymes. Huh? Rhymes? Okay, so, so that's a part. Okay, let me, uh, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit. I always rhyme. Yes, meter. Right? So what is meter? Meter is like a beat. It's like a rhythm, it's a cadence, right? Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, so are you, right? That's, there's, a, there's a rhythm, there's a beat, right? And then secondarily, um, there's usually a rhyme, but not always. So this is actually um, optional, right? But it always has meter. So let's talk about Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry has none of those features. Um, the two most essential features of, of Hebrew poetry is density of imagery. Um, there's a lot of metaphors, um, lots of, uh, uh, of vivid imagery, and then there's something called parallelism. Parallelism is where there's two lines. Um, in the English translation, you'll see um, it indented, but in the original text, they didn't have these visual cues um, because of the scarcity of paper. But the, the first line and then the second line are logically connected. So it could be they're saying the same thing. It could be they're saying the opposite thing. It could be that there's one is, uh, the second line is intensifying the second line. But there's some sort of logical connection, OK? So that's Hebrew poetry. Let me um, sort of illustrate that for you, because we're going to read Psalm 22. So can you guys look at verses 12 and 13? That's on the second column. Let me just read uh, those two verses and sort of illustrate to you the features of Hebrew poetry. 
So let me just set the context. Psalm 22, David is surrounded by his enemies. Um, and so this is how he describes it. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So he's saying, right, he's surrounded by his enemies, right? Maybe, he's hide, maybe when he's hiding in a cave or he's being chased by his son. Um, and he describes it as bulls surrounding him. And so he's thinking about these really mean, tough bulls with their horns, you know, angry at him. But then look at the second line, right? That's the imagery. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. So Bashan is a fertile valley in Israel. So the cows, right, the bulls in Bashan are the biggest, strongest bulls in all of Israel. So he's, it's an intensification, right? It's like someone saying, um, um, that's a really big tree. That's like a sequoia in you know, Yosemite, sort of like that. That's the equivalent. So he's, he's thinking of the, the fiercest, meanest bull. And then he layers on the imagery, verse 13. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So he's imagining these bulls um, like these predators, you know, whose only goal is to devour you, to kill you and destroy you. That's what he's experiencing. That's his sensation. So, therefore, Hebrew poetry, as you can see, is very dense. Um, they pack a lot into these two little lines. Um, every time you see imagery, you're not supposed to just like breezily read through it. You just have to think. What is this imagery saying? Um, each line, you should be thinking about the connection. What is the connection between these lines? And therefore, you can't read Hebrew poetry quickly. Um, you can't scan it. You have to read it slowly and, and digest it, um, which I think makes Hebrew poetry a little bit more challenging to read. But the majority of the Old Testament is poetry, right? So uh, we have to get, start getting used to it. All right. Uh, those are the mechanics of Hebrew poetry. Let me, um, last point before we dive into the actual uh, example psalm. How do we read the psalms in light of the New Testament? I want you to see that there are four levels uh, with every psalm. First, there's the original author. Psalm 22 would be David. So you're supposed to think about, okay, what is David going through? You know, why is, is he being chased by Saul? How can I imagine what he's experiencing? And then remember, these are worship songs for Israel. So then Israel, as a people, they're singing these words, right? Bulls are surrounding me, strong bulls of Bashan. So we have to remember Israel's experience of being constantly surrounded by hostile neighbors. And then the third level is we have to remember Jesus sang the Psalms as a devout Jew. Every devout Jew was constantly singing the Psalms. There's a very interesting text in Mark 14, 26, which says that after the Last Supper, it says they sang some songs. What songs are these? Not like, you know, bar diddlies. They were singing psalms, right? It's interesting to me that on the cross, Jesus quotes two Old Testament texts. The two texts he quotes is Psalm 22 and Psalm 31. And it just shows you how much the psalms were on Jesus' heart. He was being tortured, right? His life was ebbing away. You don't have time to do some sort of analytical thinking, we were saying which Old Testament text would be most appropriate for this moment. He was, he was just spitting out what was the most instinctually deep thing inside of him. These were the Psalms, right? Psalm 22, Psalm 31. Um, and it shows us that because Jesus is singing the Psalms, the Psalms are 
ultimately about Jesus. Every psalm is talking ultimately about Jesus, so that when David sings, many bulls encompass me, he's actually giving us a glimpse into Jesus' experience, right, of, of, uh, of being surrounded by his enemies. And finally, the New Testament church sings the psalms. There's a lot of references to the church singing, singing songs, including Colossians 3, right, where Paul says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All three words refer to, by the way, psalms. You'll find all three of those words in the book of Psalms. So the New Testament church is constantly singing. So how does this apply to the New Testament church? Um, you know, they're surrounded by demonic forces. So these are our songs as well. Um, can I, Joe, can I have you lower the, the, the heat? I might be the only one like working up a sweat, but <laughs> it's becoming uncomfortable. Um, all right, so let's read Psalm 22 because every book I wanted to give you a, a large chunk of the text so let me read it to you. Uh, Psalm 22, we're just going to read select portions. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, that's probably, a, that's a tune that we've now lost. Uh, doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, right? So this is written by David. Um, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you recognize this. This is Jesus' own words from the cross. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And by the way, when, you're, when he quotes the first verse, he's not just saying only that. He's applying all of it, the whole psalm. He's meditating on the whole psalm. So it all applies. So, we're, so in a sense, reading the psalms gives us a deeper appreciation of what's going on in the story because now we realize we, we can get more commentary, more details about his crucifixion. So let me keep reading verse 1. Why are you so far from saving me from the, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So the psalmist David is talking about this sense of forsakenness. And remember, we're all supposed to sing this. So what does that mean? It means that forsakenness is not just David's experience. It's not just Jesus' experience. But we all, all of us as Christ followers, we will feel abandoned, right? We'll say, oh God, where are you? Um, I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So what David is saying is that there will be moments in your life where it seems like faith in God is pointless. It seems like it's all for nothing. It's meaningless. Um, verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Look at the imagery. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. A pot shard is when you break a, um, a piece of pottery and it shatters into all those little pieces. My strength is... Um, dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, right? He's experiencing extreme thirst. You lay me in the dust of death. So the suffering here is intense, um, and we should be thinking about Christ, but we should also be thinking about ourselves. Do not be surprised when you go through intense suffering and adversity in your life. Um, the psalmist describes it as his life is just all is being drained out. All of his vitality is gone. His life is being poured out like water. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of 
evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is Jesus, of course, on the cross. Finally, verse 19, this is how it concludes. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. So the psalmist teaches us how to deal with suffering and adversity. We bring it to God, right? We, it's, okay to, it's okay to sound like you're complaining to God, right? Saying, God, this is what's going on. You don't have to clean up your prayers and say, so I'm going through some troubles. <laughs> you know, it could be vigorous. It could be intense. But then do it before God. Bring it before God. All right, so that's the book of Psalms. Any questions before we go on? Yes, Eric. Uh, there are some psalms where like, the psalmist is like, very angry and asks God to like, punish and strike down his Yes. Enemies. How should we as Christians think about that? Because we're often, you know, we often hear like, Jesus' message about praying for your enemies and loving them. Yeah. So is that, it feels like there's a little bit of a tension. Yeah. So the tension you describe is um, a normal feeling you should have when you read the Bible. Um, Rarely is it the case where the Bible gives simple, um, uncomplicated answers. So Jesus says, forgive your enemies, love your enemies. But the psalmist says, um, it's, uh, pr uh, it gives us examples of praying for your enemies to be destroyed. Uh, I think they're both true. Uh, it's a complicated situation. Uh, it's a complicated emotion that you should have when it comes to your enemies. Um, I think the psalmist is accenting the final justice that you're longing for. You, you, what you want is you want um, evil to be addressed. You want evil to end. You want evil to be destroyed. And so I think these are, in the end, godly emotions. What do you think, Eric? I know you've struggled or wrestled with that yourself. Uh, I don't know. I was hoping for like a clear, like gospel-centered. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, but I guess it's not as simple as you're saying. Yeah. Well, we, we can talk about it more, um, but uh, my savior is time, so the bell rang. All right, we'll have to go. <laughs> Keep going forward. Let me, uh, let me press into the wisdom literature. Uh, what is wisdom? Wisdom, sometimes I sort of think of wisdom as Yoda. <laughs> um, it's just someone who's older and wiser. Um, or maybe we think of wisdom as like those day calendars that give you inspirational thoughts. Um, that will make you how to live a successful life, tips, how to make friends and influence people. But I want you to understand that wisdom in the Bible is the art of godly living. And I give two, example, two verses here that really are seminal, foundational. Proverbs 1.7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So where do we get wisdom? First and foremost, fearing God. Um, and what does it mean to fear God? Uh, the best the illustration I've ever heard is by John Piper. He says, uh, fear, to fear God is not where you're cowering because God is scary, but because you're filled with reverence and awe. He said it's like standing on the edge of a hurricane. You recognize the power of the hurricane at any moment. It could just lift you up and destroy you, but you're amazed at its majesty, its greatness, right? So that's, that's where wisdom comes from. Wisdom is contrasted with folly. Uh, Psalm 14, verse 1 the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So what is a fool sort of in common vernacular? It's kind of an idiot, um, somebody who makes mistakes. But in the Bible, a fool is somebody who doesn't 
live before the presence of God, right? Who doesn't recognize the, the sovereignty of God and the fear of God. Uh, one more point I want to make before we jump into Proverbs. I want you to see that wisdom is multidimensional. I, I drew the graphic here. Um, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, I'm going to show you, are in dynamic tension. Um, to some degree, they seem contradictory, uh, what Eric already alluded to a little bit, uh, tension in the Bible. And so we're going to talk about that a great deal as we go on, but I just wanted to keep, keep that image in your mind. All right, so let's dive into Proverbs. So if you read Proverbs um, chapters 1 through 9 at the very beginning, it, it sets up the paradigm, which is that... Um, there are two ways to live. There's wisdom and there's, there's folly. And it's depicted, wisdom and folly are depicted in Psalm um, 1 through 9 as two ladies. <laughs> this is my best rendition of a lady. All right, two ladies, two women. Um, there's Lady Wisdom, she's prudent, she's wise, she's beckoning this young man who's walking along the street um, to come and dwell with her, to, to uh, marry her, basically. There's Lady Folly, she's an adulteress, she's, you know, lewd, she's like, you know, uh, giving this come-hither look to the, to the man. And I think this is a really profound insight that Proverbs is depicting this choice as two women. Uh, because what that is telling us is that wisdom is not these abstract truths. They're not just intellectual little maxims, but it's like a marriage. Um, it's deep. You know, who you marry, whoever you marry, you end up being transformed by them. Um, and ultimately, it's a relationship with a person. And that's sort of the thesis I want to give to you, which is that lady wisdom is ultimately Jesus. No, uh, no, this is Proverbs 1 through 9. That is how scholar interpret. Yeah, yeah, that's how it, that it's, it's, that's how it starts. It's very sexist. You know, like, it's, 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 it's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the Proverbs starts out with a father teaching his son. And then he's, he's instructing his son, and then he's saying there's going to be two ladies calling to you. And, he, and the choice is who are you going to live with, who are you going to marry, who are you going to make a life with? Um, so, Lady Wisdom is ultimately Jesus. Um, I think it's really interesting on the, on the, Winnie, on the point you were making, is it sexist? It's not because ultimately Jesus is taking on this title, I'm Lady Wisdom, right? Um, and th there's, a, there's, a, there's a passage in the, the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul writes, we preach Christ crucified, he says, Christ is the wisdom of God, right? So ultimately, this is uh, telling us about Jesus. Um, and let me just say here, uh, wisdom is not just simple maxims, but there's complexity and there's um, paradox. So let me give you an example, two examples. Proverbs 15, verse 6, let me read it to you. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. So what is that telling us? It's telling us if you live a righteous life, you are going to be wealthy. If you live a wicked life of rebellion, then what will happen to you? Trouble, right? So Proverbs is saying, um, 
the godly will lead to prosperity. And then the wicked will lead to trouble. Right? That's basically the message of Proverbs. And we see there's a lot of truth to that. Um, if you're godly, if you avoid um, addictions, if you're prudent, if you're hardworking, these are all godly virtues. Indeed, wealth will come into your life. Um, and if you're wicked, if, you're, if you make uh, self-serving, self-absorbed choices in life, if you fall into addictions, if you fall into the wrong crowd, you will have trouble in your life. But then listen to Proverbs 28, verse 6. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. So what is that telling us? It's telling us that not all wealth is out of godliness. Um, and sometimes you have to choose. And if you have to choose, the Proverbs is saying, choose godliness. Choose to be poor with integrity, right? Then, um, then evil, uh, evil gains. So truth is complicated. It's paradoxical. There are no easy answers in Proverbs. This is sort of the basic paradigm, but the word that Proverbs would put it there is usually. Usually. Right? Usually. All right, let's read Proverbs 31. Um, Proverbs 31 is a depiction of an ideal woman. Um, I remember growing up as a young man in the Christian faith and constantly being commended Proverbs 31. People would tell me, marry a Proverbs 31 woman. Um, this is who you should be going for. The woman depicted is multi-talented. She has boundless energy. She's financially savvy. She's a domestic goddess. Um, she's super strong and capable. And of course, she's deeply godly. Um, but let me just say this, right? If you read it only or primarily as this is who you should marry, it's a deeply shallow, moralistic, um, reading of the text because, you know, women read this text and women feel depressed, right? They feel oppressed by this standard. And then men read the text and they say, there is no such woman. Um, <laughs> but I want you to see, again, the paradigm that I'm advocating. Proverbs 31 is ultimately about Jesus. It's showing us this perfect depiction of lady wisdom and she's beckoning us to have a relationship with us. Um, and I think then only secondarily, it's giving us guidance on how to choose a spouse. Notice in Proverbs 31, there is no description of her physical appearance at all. It's all about the inner qualities. It's all about her character. Um, and secondarily, women, you can read Proverbs 31 and see this as um, uh, traits that you can aspire to, but knowing that that this is a perfect, ideal person. This is ultimately Jesus. Um, but we're, we want to grow into his stature. We want to grow into his image. So let's read Proverbs 31 together. I'll read it to you, starting in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. I, I love that. What that basically is saying is that the most important decision, one of the most important decisions in your life is who you will marry, right? It will shape the course of your life. Um, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no gain or he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. So she's very industrious. 
She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night. So she, she, she wakes up before sunrise, right? She's very diligent um, and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the, fruit, with the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. So she's very business savvy, right? She, she knows how to engage in the marketplace. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She's not a delicate lady who will fall apart under adversity, but she's tough. She's resilient. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She wakes up before dawn. She stays up late into the night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's somebody who's not greedy. She's profoundly generous. She loves the poor. She engages with the cause of uh, the brokenhearted. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land, right? So she brings out the best in her husband, right? She, she empowers him. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. So what that's basically saying is she's not afraid of the future. Why is that? Because she's making plans. She's doing forward thinking, right? She's, she's prepared for the future. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She's an excellent teacher. She's full of wisdom. She's full of kindness. She looks well to the way of her house, ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She's never lazy. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. She's a good mother. She's a good wife. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Right? Most of all, um, she loves God. She's a devout woman. She, she, um, she lives before His presence. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So, this is Jesus. Uh, there's no other way that you can ultimately read it. Um, this is our ultimate spouse who we're longing uh, to be united to and who will comfort us, um, who will delight us. Any questions about Proverbs? All right, let's go to Job. Um, so Job deals with the question of suffering. And so here's the story. Um, Job is a godly man and um, he has great prosperity. He has 10 children, seven, uh, seven sons, three daughters, um, he has great wealth. And then Satan goes, uh, and he loves the Lord. And Satan goes to God and he says, the only reason why Job loves you and honors you is because you've given him all of these, all of this prosperity. Essentially, you're bribing him. If you take those things away, Job will curse you. And God says, that's not true. Um, I will be vindicated in the life of Job and so I will permit you to take those things away from him and you will see his enduring faith. And so Satan does a calamitous day. All of his wealth is destroyed. All of his children tragically die. And in Job, he proves God right. He says one of the greatest statements of faith in the Bible. He says, naked I came from my mother, mother's womb. Naked I will return. 
He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? It doesn't matter whether I'm rich or poor. To God alone be the praise. Then Satan comes back to God and says, yeah, but you didn't touch his body. Um, If you give him physical suffering, if you give him chronic pain, if you take away his health, then he'll curse you. And God says, you're wrong again. And so God says, okay, I'm going to permit you to take away his health. And so at the end of chapter 2, you have Job. He's sitting on an ash heap. He's scraping the boils on his skin, painful boils with a pot shard. He's utterly devastated. He's totally ruined. He's in deep, deep suffering. And then that's the setup. And the rest of the book is a meditation on suffering, Job's suffering. And the book is, I think, really profound because it it basically says that suffering that seems to be pointless, that seems to be meaningless, and that's what Job is struggling with. Why is this happening to me? What is this all about? What is this for? Seemingly meaningless suffering challenges our faith in God. Is God still real? Is God still good in the face of such suffering? And I think it's a really profound book because I think that's the biggest question in this life. What is the meaning of suffering? Um, Did I somehow cause it? Where is God in all of it? And I want to show you that Job seems to be in tension with Proverbs. Remember the basic teaching of Proverbs? The godly will prosper and the wicked will have trouble in their life. Well, what about Job? Job is a godly man. That's what the text says. Um, And in fact, Job's friends come to him. And they first, they they do a good job. They sit with him. I love this description. They, They saw his distress. They had no words. They sat with him for seven days. Um, It's an amazing act of uh, sympathy and um, empathy. But then they open their mouths. Um, And then they say, well, Job, the reason, well, well, Job starts to speak, right? Job says, why am I going through this suffering? And the friends basically cite Proverbs. They say, look, obviously you did some scandalous, dastardly evil. What is it? Confess it, and then things will be made right. Um, You brought this upon yourself. And Job insists that he is innocent of this crime. He is a righteous man. And uh, some um, some of the chapters are really long, eloquent passages about what is righteousness in the Bible. Job talks about um, his engagement with social justice. He says, nobody around me is poor because I'm constantly pouring out wealth. I'm sharing uh, with everyone around me. He fights for um, the disadvantaged. And so it's an argument about suffering. And the whole time Job is asking this question, why? Why is this happening to me? And I want to show you that uh, the book of Job is ultimately about Jesus because the answer to Job's question Um, is to look at Jesus. Because Job talks about the fact that he's an innocent sufferer. He doesn't deserve this. But he's wrong. He's a human being, a son of Adam, and therefore he's a sinner just like all of us. Relatively speaking, he's a righteous man. Um, He's virtuous. But nevertheless, he can't say that he doesn't deserve suffering. But Jesus is the only one who truly can say, I am completely absolutely innocent, and yet Jesus suffered far worse than Job. And so what does that mean? It means that God is not distant from our suffering because God sent His only Son to suffer 
um, which means that God cares about us, that God has an answer to our suffering, which is, which is Christ. And so we should take that to heart. I wanted to read a, a few passages from Job. So let me read to you Job 38. Job is demanding answers from God. Um, and so this is God appears uh, in Job chapter 38. So from chapter 3 to chapter 37, it's this intense long dialogue. And then we get to God's appearance. Verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were, or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, those are angels, shouted for joy. So let's consider God's response. What does Job want from God? Job wants an explanation. Job wants some kind of, of he wants to understand what's going on. Now, there is an explanation, which is this, behind-the-scenes heavenly drama where Satan challenges God and, and um, uh, denounces Job as only, in, only loving God because of money and wealth. And so God permits suffering to vindicate himself and to vindicate Job, right? To prove that Job has enduring faith, which Job does, right? He's, he's full of distress, he's, he's full of questions, but he's still clinging on to God. Um, he doesn't curse God. But notice God doesn't explain any of that. He doesn't, he doesn't give any explanation of any kind. Instead, all God says is, I'm God and Job, you are not. Right? Were you there at the foundation of the earth? And what's interesting, even more interesting perhaps, is Job's response. Job gets none of his answers questioned and Job says, thank you. That is exactly what I needed and Job is helped. Look at uh, Job's response in Job chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's talking about himself, right? Wherefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think it's a really um, profound response. And it shows us that Job's greatest need isn't an explanation to his suffering, but it's to see God. It's to, have, it's to be in God's presence. And Job realizes that all along his demand for an explanation from God is Job arrogating himself and putting himself in the place of God. Who is he to judge what God can and cannot do? Who is he to judge how God is ruling this world? But Job realizes that peace and contentment um, and joy comes from trusting in God's sovereign care and, and not knowing necessarily the mystery of why God is doing this or that. Why does God permit us or permit our loved ones to go down into the valley of suffering? A lot of times we don't know the answer but we know it's from a good and loving God. And notice that Job in the presence of God, right? When his friends were accusing him of scandalous sin, Job protests his innocence. But then when he's before a holy God, he says, I repent in dust and ashes, right? And so that's the, that's the answer. In the end, we need to 
repent and recognize that we live by the grace of God. Any questions on Job? All right, Ecclesiastes. I love Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes in many ways reads like a modern text. The whole premise of Ecclesiastes is, what if there is no God? Um, what if this life is all that there is? And then Ecclesi the author responds, if that is true, then life is meaningless. There's no point in even trying um, because everything will end, everything will be for nothing. And so he's extending this logic of life without God. If there is no God, then the universe will eventually die. Everyone, every memory of anything you've ever done will fall apart. Nothing will last. And so uh, you see this kind of jaded skepticism, right? Hard work and wisdom come to nothing, which seems to be in contradiction to Proverbs, right? Proverbs is all about work hard, um, pursue God, um, um, pursue wisdom, but Ecclesiastes says, pointless, meaningless. Um, and I want you to see that there's this dynamic tension then between these three books of wisdom. And the way I sort of think of it, the analogy I would give is, think of Proverbs as this eager teacher's pet sitting in the front of class, and he's always saying, ooh, ooh I know the answer. The righteous prosper, the wicked will perish. Um, and then you could think of Ecclesiastes, the way I think of it is he's like this James Dean character. He's this sullen teenager with sunglasses and he's smoking and he's totally cynical and he just, he scoffs at everything. Um, and then you have Job and the way I think of Job is he's this devastated kid sitting in the corner of a room. He's covered in pimples. His family is going through bankruptcy and he's just crying, right? Um, <laughs> so which perspective is true? And the answer is, they're all true. They're all in dynamic tension with one another. They're all in di a dialogue with one another. The straightforward ethic of Proverbs is softened by the skepticism of Ecclesiastes and the suffering of Job. And Ecclesiastes reminds us of the cruelty and injustice of this life. Um, Proverbs says, the righteous prosper, the wicked perish. But Ecclesiastes says, not always. Sometimes the righteous suffer and the wicked will flourish and triumph. And so there's a gap between what the Bible promises seemingly and what we experience as reality. And this gap reminds us that this world is not as it should be. And so it creates this longing in us for the next world, the final redemption. And so the answer of Ecclesiastes is ultimately Jesus. King Jesus will come, he will make everything right, he will restore all injustice, and so it, it, uh, we look forward to that. I put in Romans 8.20, because it says, for the creation was subjected to futility. The word futility there is the exact same word that's used to translate vanities or meaningless in the, uh, in the Ecclesiastes 1, and so I think it's a reference to that. Um, the ultimate answer is the resurrection in Jesus Christ. All right, so uh, let me read to you Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Um, actually, I'm going to not read Ecclesiastes 1 for the sake of, I'll read just a, uh, the top verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king, of, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities. By the way, ah, oh, I just love the language of Ecclesiastes. The literal Hebrew word there literally means vapor. So he's saying vapor, vapor which means just 
missed, nothing, right? Um, other translations is meaningless, meaningless. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all this toil and, and at, which toil, at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns as all streams run to the sea but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. What is Ecclesiastes saying? He's saying life is motion without meaning. We're just spinning our wheels. We're, not, we're, we're going nowhere. Um, I'll have to leave it at that for the sake of time. Uh, let me say these concluding words. Ecclesiastes reminds us not to put our hope in this world. This world is cruel, it's arbitrary, it's full of injustice. I think this is really profound because we live in the Bay Area. The Bay Area is a dynamic economy. We see everyone getting wealthy and we just tell ourselves, oh, if I could only work hard enough, if I could only join the right company, then I could be wealthy. And we're sort of like thinking in terms of Proverbs. The hardworking, the smart make money and the lazy um, and, and the uneducated will not prosper. But Ecclesiastes reminds us, not always. There's a lot of injustice in the world. There's a lot of unfairness in the world. And it teaches us not to put our hope in this life. Don't bank on happiness and success in the here and now, but long for the world to come, for, for the coming of Christ. All right, let me go to Song of Solomon. I, I did want to get to it. This will be fun. This is erotic love poetry in the Bible. I think this is a great corrective because Christians have the reputation of being down on sex. Right? We think, oh, sex is only for procreation, making babies. But otherwise, you know, let's not talk about it. Let's not you know, um, um, dwell on it. Um, and then you have the secular mindset, which is sex is just a natural appetite. When you're hungry, you eat. When you feel like you want to have sex, just have sex. But the Bible talks about the beauty of marital sex. Um, so Song of Solomon takes us back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. So this is a depiction of marital sex before the fall, all right? Um, and ultimately, this is about Christ and the church. Um, I'll leave it at that. Let me just get to the text. So Song of Solomon, I wanted to read some passages. If you read Song of Solomon with a commentary helping you to unpack the imagery, it will make you blush. It is explicit, barefaced enjoyment of sex. And I think to the degree that we're embarrassed, what does that tell us? It tells us that our view of sex is not high enough, as high as, God, as God's view of it. So let me read to you Song of Solomon, chapter 7. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the, the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth be like the best wine. So the husband here is describing his wife. She is like a palm tree, and her breasts are like the coconut clusters. And what does he say? I'm going to climb the coconut tree, and I'm going to grab a hold of the fruit and enjoy them. And so we see this depiction of a man enjoying the breasts of his wife. We see enjoyment. We see happiness. Even more explicit text, let me read to you. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So this is the husband speaking to his wife, right? And so then the wife responds. Verse 3. 
I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? So what is she saying? She's getting naked, right? <laughs> um, I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them, right? So she's making herself very presentable. Remember in the Middle East, um, the feet was the dirtiest part of you. So she cleans it. She's present, making herself very presentable. Verse 4, my beloved, this is still the wife talking. My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. All right. So it seems kind of like um, very mysterious language. If you read a commentary and all the commentaries are agreed on this, I double checked because um, I want to make sure the wife is talking about a door, a latch to the door that she wants to open to her husband. What is she talking about? The answer is, according to commentaries, she's talking about her genitalia. She's talking about the vagina. And then it says right here, I, I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. She's talking about her arousal. And then, it's when it says, my beloved put his hand to the latch, the hand there is a euphemism for the man's penis. So what is this a description of? It is a description of the sex act, right? Coitus. I think it's really amazing to me that the Bible has this incredibly exalted, barefaced joy view of sex. You know, that, um, that Christians cannot be accused of being of puritanical when it comes to sex because the Bible celebrates sex, but it celebrates sex within the context of marriage. Um, any questions on that? That wasn't so bad. <laughs> All right, let me, um, let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for psalms and wisdom. Thank you that you gave us these books to answer the deepest questions we have about life. Um, and we pray that we would take advantage of them. We pray that we would be lovers of the word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.